In today's episode, I'll be chatting with Dr. Gabrielle Fandaro about weight-neutral dietary strategies, including intuitive eating and mindful eating. As a scientist and personal coach, Dr. Fandaro is uniquely positioned to share both scientific and practical insights for those on a journey to change their relationship with food. This episode is the second part of a two-part conversation. It builds on our earlier discussion of diet culture, weight stigma, healthism, and health at every size. Dr. Gabrielle Fandaro holds a PhD in nutrition, foods, and exercise from Virginia Tech and is a certified health and nutrition coach. You can follow her on social at Vitamin PhD and find out more about her coaching and her latest research on her website, vitaminphdnutrition.com. Let's dig in. Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science-based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Welcome to the show again, Dr. Fondaro. Thank you for being here and continuing our conversation. Absolutely. Thank you again. So in part one, we talked about a whole mess of topics from um, body weight stigma to health at every size to diet culture and anti-diet culture and healthism. But I wanted to kind of steer it towards some of the ways that this is being implemented, some of the anti-diet culture is being implemented. So I wanted to dig a bit into um, weight neutral approaches and intuitive eating in particular. Um, can you maybe define kind of where, what a weight neutral dietary approach is and maybe talk about where it came from? Yeah, well, I guess the most basic uh, way of describing that would be a weight neutral dietary approach is one that does not, uh, that we don't employ um, with the intention to change someone's body weight. Mm -hmm. And um, that can look many different ways. Uh, and it also is about the intention uh, behind the behavior. Mm -hmm. um, and it is one way to help folks to um, rehabilitate their relationship with food, but not necessarily a one size fits all approach. Uh, it's not necessarily going to be appropriate for all individuals in all circumstances, mm -hmm. uh, because there are times when an individual may need to um, change their body weight for medical purposes mm -hmm. and, um, and, you know, you can use uh, a non-intuitive uh, form of eating in that case. Yeah. Actually, when I interviewed Dr. Nicola Guest about diabetes, she said that one of the directions she's excited about is weight neutral dietary changes for diabetes prevention and management. So it can, it can be about your relationship with food, but also it could be about health endpoints, but in a way that doesn't go through weight loss. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's the, it's really a shift from focusing on the outcome of weight mm -hmm. change um, to focusing on the behaviors. So mm -hmm. weight change may still occur. Uh, and that's why, you know, I think that's another maybe misconception that when we say weight neutral, people might uh, assume that that means no weight change will occur or that we are trying to prevent weight change from occurring. Mm -hmm. But that's not the case. It's simply that right. we allow weight to do whatever it does. It's an outcome of the change in our habits. Okay. So really any dietary strategy for which the goal is not weight loss, but that may or may not happen? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would say that, yeah. So With any goal other than weight loss, which most diets, which is probably <laughs> what most diets are, you know, at this point, that's going to be yeah. a small slice of the pie. 
Yes, yeah, exactly. In most cases, people are, you know, when we're talking about dieting, um, although there's not an agreed upon definition of dieting, in most cases in the literature, it's referring to some form of uh, intentional reduction in caloric intake mm -hmm. for the purpose of reducing body size. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. and when we, again, so with a weight neutral approach, we can certainly do all, maybe many of the same things that we would do with a diet approach. Mm -hmm. Um, but we're not intending to change our body weight. And in most yeah. cases we're we're not, um, you know, counting calories and macros and sort of keeping a tally of energy balance mm -hmm. because that is not our focus. We're focused mm -hmm. more on, um, you know, changing the dietary pattern, both what we're eating how we're eating it, mm -hmm. uh, why we're eating, um, and when, and then mm -hmm. what else we might be doing to support other um, aspects of our health if we found that maybe we were using food to meet emotional needs. Mm -hmm. Now, two of the terms I've heard a lot are intuitive eating and mindful eating. So how do those intersect? Yeah. Maybe define them so first. <laughs> Yeah, sure. So um, mindful eating is, uh, we could think about that as a practice or a skill set that one could employ along with intuitive eating. They are both weight neutral approaches, although some people will use um, forms of mindful eating or what's called hunger training um, to uh, in, a, in a weight focused way. So to, to change their weight. Mm -hmm. So hunger training is more of the weight focused version um, of eating in response to physical hunger and stopping mm -hmm. when satisfied. And that is a skill that's also practiced in intuitive way. So mindful eating is about um, engaging in a meal experience with attention to the meal, so fixed attention on the meal. All of our senses are engaged in that meal and also an intention for how we might want that meal to affect us. So we're thinking about what are the tastes and textures and flavors or, or, and temperatures maybe that I want to experience in this meal. And how do I want to feel when I'm done with this meal? Maybe I mm -hmm. want to feel like I'm you know, satisfied. I can feel that there's food in my belly and then um, and I'm not sleepy. You know, I just feel energized and I go about my day. Mm -hmm. um, intuitive eating is actually a whole system of self-care. Um, and in, in which we can insert the practice of mindful eating, mm. but the meal experience, uh, part of intuitive eating really only gets to about three of the 10 guideposts. So mm. the first steps of intuitive eating, because it is, uh, intended as an intervention to stop yo-yo dieting or the chronic dieting cycle is actually about resisting, um, or breaking free from diet culture. So the okay. idea that there is a next best diet and that I have to lose weight mm -hmm. um, and challenging the food police that say certain foods are on or off limits and moving to a place where we are responding to our hunger and our fullness signals with foods that we find very satisfying. So focusing on the satisfaction factor of mm -hmm. the meal, but we're also moving our body in enjoyable ways. We're respecting our body. So our intention for what we're doing is to treat our body well and take care of it. And we're also considering the concept of gentle nutrition. So we have an awareness of the nutritional qualities of food, and we use those to inform our decisions about what we might eat. So we might practice mindful eating as part of the intuitive eating framework. Mm -hmm. They are actually uh, distinct things, although I think there's a lot of overlap in terms of tuning into internal signals and ensuring that we're meeting our, our non-food needs 
with um, sometimes things that are not food. So if we're feeling um, lonely or we're feeling bored or we're feeling anxious, we increase our ability to identify accurately those sensations and discern them from hunger and then determine what it is that would better meet those needs. Mm-hmm. It sounds pretty uh, pretty daunting, honestly, as, as, I, as someone who's been like a victim of diet culture and not, and it's, it's total, it's a total paradigm shift and seems overwhelming to implement. Do you find people struggle to implement that? And, and how do they, what, I mean, how do you break it down into baby steps? Cause it's just it's so many, it's yeah, so much. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, like I said, you know, there are going to be some groups for which intuitive eating might be contraindicated. So in individuals who are um, working through an eating disorder like anorexia nervosa, um, they may actually need to engage with uh, mechanical eating. So they're eating um, in a structured way uh, because, again, there might be a need for weight gain. Or in individuals who are currently seeking treatment for another form of an eating disorder that even though um, practices of intuitive eating can be helpful, it is recommended that they're still doing that with other forms of therapy. But in folks who are just um, in feeling like they're in the cycle of chronic dieting and they are fed up with, with counting macros and have found that they are sort of feeling very restricted and then they go through these phases where they feel like they're overeating and out of control, this can be really useful for them. But you're right that it is um, a large investment in terms of the time and thought and mm-hmm. trust that's yeah. required to go on that journey. Absolutely. So when I'm working with a client who wants to move away from tracking, I really just meet them where they are. And I ask, you know, I, if they're interested in intuitive eating, uh, I want to be transparent. I'm not an intuitive eating um, counselor or, or coach, but I can provide them with information about intuitive eating and say, these are the practices. This is intended to be a weight neutral approach. I don't say that intuitive eating is going to help them lose weight or do anything to their weight. I'm very clear about that and ask them what they might feel comfortable with practicing. It most, in most cases, by the time they've come to me, they've already rejected the diet mentality. They're like, I'm over this. I don't want to do another mm-hmm. diet. I want to find a place of balance. And they have already started the process of challenging you know, there are good foods and bad foods. So at that point, they may want to practice identifying their hunger and their fullness cues. Um, and and establishing greater trust in themselves that they can actually sense those things. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to find you know what might be a helpful practice for them. Quite often, using mindful eating, um, at least a, a, a number of times, it's reasonable for a person. It's not going to happen at every meal. It might be the first bite of one meal. Um, so if they've identified that there's a specific meal that they kind of struggle with, it might be mm-hmm. you know can we practice mindful eating with the first bite of so those are what I usually find people are comfortable um, working with is identifying their hunger and fullness signals, identifying the other reasons why they might want to eat. So they're looking for those patterns and, oh, usually when I'm driving home from work, I'm thinking that I want to have X, Y, and Z because I'm so stressed. How else might we be able to meet those other needs? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, even when it comes down to meal times, you know, some thoughts about, okay, how hungry am I right now? What is the type of food that I'm really hungry for? Um, and of course, that comes with challenging a lot of narratives because a lot of people have a belief that if they eat one Reese's cup, they're going to eat all of the Reese's cups, the entire mm-hmm. bag of Reese's cups. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and so one of the ways to approach that 
is to open that bag of Reese's cups and you have it there and you eat as many Reese's cups as you want. And within a couple of days, you are really sick of Reese's cups. You don't want to eat them all mm -hmm. in one sitting. But the caveat to that is it has to be a sincere, unconditional permission to eat, not I'm going to eat all these Reese's cups and then I'm going to restrict again, because that causes people to re-engage in that overeating mm -hmm. restriction. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of difficult to give like, this is what practical application is, because like yeah. you said, there's so many moving parts. Mm -hmm. um, but in most cases, I would say the words that come up for my clients quite a lot are um, being thoughtful and being discerning. So those are, you know, we can kind of approach our meal times maybe with those um, intentions and those practices that could be a helpful first step. Yeah. Well, the, the part when I heard you speak about this on the Ben Coomer podcast, was it? Um, mm -hmm. I really liked when the host said something like, you always hear people say, I'm going to intuitive eat a whole pizza. You know, I mean, if you, if I, if I take the reins off, it's, I'm going to go nuts. And I know that if I just, if I eat purely for sensory pleasure, I'm going to be a disaster. And then yes. you sort of countered with it, how uh, the importance of trust. So can you share a little bit about your own personal experience and having to trust yourself in this process? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. So I had the same beliefs and I think that's a narrative that um, quite a few clients have. And what I, what I think that it might come from even our beliefs about people in large bodies and about self-control and that, you know, the weight stigma and beliefs that we have, affect everyone. So we even, you know, those of us even in normative bodies, we have the beliefs that, oh, if I let myself eat whatever I want, you know, oh, I'll eat, I'll never stop and I'll eat all of this junk food. Um, but there are, so there's, there's kind of two, there's a main answer to that. And then there's my experience. The main mm -hmm. answer to that is part of intuitive eating is the intention that you feel good after your meals. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so in most cases, when people are only eating those types of foods for every meal and they're eating past the point of fullness, that's not really the practice of intuitive eating. That mm -hmm. would be um, overeating and ignoring your body's cues mm -hmm. and not paying attention to the satisfaction. Factor. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's like, a, I think that's just an important um, detail to point out. Yeah. Now, my journey with this was with peanut butter. <laughs> Because I what I loved peanut butter and I was the type of person who thought I couldn't have a bunch of foods in the house. I couldn't have cereal, I couldn't have um, rice, I couldn't have peanut butter, I couldn't have chocolate. There was just a, this long list of foods that I felt that if I had them in the house, I would eat them uncontrollably. And um, I didn't have the, uh, you know, the self-control to not eat those foods. So I would freeze my peanut butter. Sorry, was and, this, was this the, as you're setting the stage, was this before or after you did some, um, a physique competition? This was, this was before. And then I went through, um, therapy for, uh, eating loss and eating sort of not otherwise specified. So I was in grad school and, um, was in a pretty balanced place. I wasn't counting macros and whatnot. I was doing trail running and jujitsu and just sort of having fun. And then it came in, it reemerged after the physique so this freezing peanut butter was more specifically after um, the physique contest. And um, I attended and I had, and it, so at this point, you know, I had been in a cycle of, uh, of overeating, of binge eating and then restricting. And I, I'm not, I can't recall the timeline now, but it, it was probably about a year or so after the show that I was mm -hmm. struggling with it. 
And I went to uh, a seminar and Nancy Clark, who's a prominent sports dietitian, she was speaking about athletes who were struggling with um, disordered eating patterns mm -hmm. and made mention of, of athletes eating, you know, some of their kind of trigger foods at, at every meal. So if they like have a food that they mm -hmm. really love, you know, they, they eat it every meal. And I thought, I think I'm going to try that with peanut butter. I'm going to let myself eat peanut butter at every meal. And I did that. And within a few days, I was like, I don't want to eat peanut butter at every meal anymore. But like, now I have the permission. I can eat peanut butter, as much peanut butter as I want anytime. And I realized that like peanut butter was not as delicious as I originally had anticipated. Yeah. Um, and, so, and yeah, and then I was able to do that with uh, chocolate, with ice cream, with cereal. And now there's just like, an abundance of whatever snack foods in the pantry. And um, I just don't, I don't know, I just don't care. Like they're there. I don't know if anyone has heard of crumble cookies, but they make these massive cookies. And every week um, we get a whole box of them and I'll have like a quarter of a cookie or whatever, however much I want. And then I'm like, oh, I'll just come back for the rest later if I want it. Because, you know, after the first time I got them and I ate a whole cookie and I was like, oh, I don't feel good guess what? I can eat less of the cookie and enjoy it and still feel good and then come yeah. back for it later. Yeah. So, but yeah, you do, you have to kind of, it's that trust fall of like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and let myself eat peanut butter every meal. I'm like, I don't know what is going to happen to my body size, mm -hmm. but right now I'm prioritizing my mental health and my relationship with food over the body weight because yeah. I can't, you know, like I just got to this point where like I can't exist in this self-imposed like food prison mm -hmm. where I can't be around cereal or peanut mm -hmm. butter. You know, I'm mm -hmm. thinking about like the rest of my life. Do I want to live like this for another, yeah. you know, however many 70 years? Nope. And so that was the trade-off. Yeah. I, I have to, I, it's funny that you said peanut butter because there's a, uh, a plant-based bodybuilder that I, I follow. And she mentioned that she also has a weakness as she put it, you know, for, for, for peanut butter. And her strategy is to only keep fresh peanuts. So she has to grind it if she ever wants any. So there's a bit of a access barrier to make herself not just digging and like devour. Yeah. But I don't know that she's ever tried to see what happened if she did give herself free access. Yeah. You know, and I think I don't ever want to stigmatize or be dogmatic about one approach. So um, if we, you know, so in the interest of acknowledging the benefits of that, shaping our food environment, that mm. certainly make things easier. Mm. You know, I, I will be honest with you, it does take more time and thought when I have a meal time now that, you know, I, and, and not to say that like prepping is like anti-intuitive or anything like that, like doing, you know, putting together some meals for yourself for the week that's totally fine. Like you can still do that in a weight neutral in a weight neutral way. But there are times in my life, like right now, when I really want to practice that and at each meal I'm eating mindfully and I'm taking time to say, what is it that I want right now? What's the taste experience? And it takes me a little while. And I've had clients say this too, they take a bunch of Tupperware out and then they're like, I don't want this one, I don't want this one, mm. you know? And so it's 10 minutes or so to decide what it is to eat and then we sit and pay attention to the, to the meal. So there is a time investment, you know, it's a thoughtfulness and it can be much faster for me to just say like, oh, I'm going to prep my meals for the week. And then I go in and then I you know, grab whatever it is, my Tupperware and eat that 
not to say that we can't practice mindfully there too. I could say like, oh, I know I've prepped this amount of food, but I'm only hungry about half of it. Mm -hmm. um, but even that, that requires attention. And we may be at a point in our lives where we say, I don't want to have to give that my attention mm -hmm. and my mental energy. Easier for me to just not have the peanut butter around than to sit and say, I'm really craving the peanut butter right now. Like, is this, do I want to, um, you know, ride the wave of the craving? Do I come back in 20 minutes? Do I want to think about it? Maybe. Or maybe we say, don't have time for that right now. I'm just going to keep yeah. the peanuts on the ground. So yeah. there's validity. It really comes down, like I said, to the intention behind it. Um, is it coming from a place of restriction and anxiety and like, I don't trust myself? Or is it coming from a place of, let me make this a little bit easier on myself and there's like not yeah. have it around for you know? So mm -hmm. can't say that either one is like right or, or better than the other. Um, but it's just, uh, you know, that be, it could be that a person feels like they don't have trust in themselves. Maybe it would mm -hmm. be useful for mm -hmm. them to experiment with it. Do you find it's um, particularly more challenging for people in families where it's not just about what you want for yourself, but you're thinking about you're serving, you're serving food that other people want, which may be a trigger for you and all this stuff. Like, do you deal with, have you had to deal with that with clients? Oh yeah. Oh, so there's two perspectives on this. One is the perspective of, can we practice intuitive eating in a tempting food environment? Mm -hmm. We have abundance of palatable foods every year. Long-term studies have shown that the practice of intuitive eating is not associated with um, a, a worsening of dietary patterns. So people are not eating more, you know, quote unquote, junk food. It's actually associated with long-term weight stability, so less weight cycling mm -hmm. and reduced opportunistic eating. So mm -hmm. a reduction in people eating food just because it's available. So that's mm -hmm. where that topic, that's where that word discernment comes in. Mm -hmm. I really, I love that people can say, you know, I'm not going to eat this just because it's here anymore. You know, previously yeah. it was, oh, this is sweet and I'm going to eat it because I never get to eat sugar. Now mm -hmm. it's like, oh, these are just like stale cookies from the grocery store and mm -hmm. I don't really eat those. So we can use those practices to uh, navigate attempting food environments mm -hmm. and navigate an environment that might include things that other people want to eat um, with more discernment. On the other hand, we also need to acknowledge that there's a lot of privilege that comes along with the practice of intuitive eating. Yeah. I can go to my fridge and say, I can pick whatever it is that I want to eat here, and I can do this as many times a day as I feel hungry. And that is a huge amount of privilege. And I say this coming from a place of food insecurity, having lived on welfare when I was a young child up until my teens. So I also know that I came from a background of food insecurity and I came from a place of having nothing in the cupboards but like government cereal and cranberry juice. And that absolutely influenced my relationship with food throughout my life. Mm -hmm. And I had to identify those patterns and say, oh, hey, you know what? When I'm traveling and I get to a new place and I feel the compelled to eat when I'm not hungry, it's because of my food environment when I was young. Mm -hmm. And so we need to also acknowledge that that it's not as simple as just saying, oh, you eat in response to physical hunger and what you really want and what would be very satisfying. Yeah. Because there are many people who actually can't do that. So we still need to um, you know, help to support their version of health-seeking behaviors. You know, if you're in a food desert, intuitive eating practices might look very different. Mm -hmm. and, and so we need to acknowledge that and say, how can we... Um, how can we make this malleable? How can we make this work yeah. for our circumstances? Yeah.
That's an interesting point that the family table, at, at least when, you know, in, in higher socioeconomic groups is really just one incarnation of this high abundance scenario. And how do you navigate that high abundance, high yeah. hyper or hyper palatability? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So as we as you wrap up, any resources you'd like to leave people with to learn more? Um, put I'd, I'd love go ahead and put in a plug for your website and, and all your work. because I think it's awesome. And I'd also like to hear, you know, the resources that you draw on, because I know you're very thoughtful about your sources. Oh, thank you. Um, so, yeah, I do try to, you know, when I'm writing articles and whatnot, I have um, a variety of textbooks and, you know, the original sources and um, as many uh, just empirical sources as I can find. Mm -hmm. So um, there is, so, so Tripoli and Resch wrote Intuitive Eating. Um, they actually just uh, re-released uh, an updated version this past mm. year. And so they have kind of reorganized the, the order of the guideposts. And um, I think they've also added aspects on intuitive eating for, for children. Mm. Um, so that's where I would recommend people look if they want to find out, you know, what intuitive eating actually is. There's also the Center for Mindful Eating. So it is separate from intuitive eating, as I mentioned, but um, that's a place where you can really and learn more about the practice of mindful eating. Um, they actually have some webinars every now and again also. Um, so those are the two that I would, you know, look into for those two specific topics. Um, and then in terms of, of kind of other resources, looking at the aspects of the food environment, mm -hmm. um, Stephen Guiné wrote The Hungry Brain. And he talks about how the built environment might influence our food choices. So that gets to kind of an interesting, you know, mm -hmm. um, alternative perspective. And then modern food, moral food, Vite also uh, at the end of the book explains um, how our perspective about uh, sort of this obesogenic environment um, may still kind of take this individualistic approach to say, oh, well, some people are just like really good at resisting this and other people aren't. Mm -hmm. Whereas intuitive eating and weight neutral approaches say probably everyone can practice these skills to some extent and have the ability to navigate this food environment, um, even though it is tempting. And there are foods that are really easy to eat a lot of quickly and we can keep that in mind as we're applying that concept of gentle nutrition. How satisfying is this food and how do I feel after I eat it? Um, that might indicate to me how much of it I want to include in my diet. So mm -hmm. I would say those are probably the resources that could get people started and then, um, you know, check out, check out PubMed. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, vitamin PhD nutrition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then um, and BG comprehensive coaching, because that's where um, that's kind of like where we are putting I put all the articles on both places. That, but that's yeah. kind of how we are applying these practices when we're working with clients. Yeah. Um, one last thing to clarify, you said I'm not an intuitive eating coach per se. So is there a certification or I mean, you're you're just a, you're certified as a health coach and as a nutrition coach. But is there a separate mm -hmm. official certification for Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So um, you can actually go to the intuitive eating website. So they put on a uh, at least one per year, but it's a pretty small and exclusive um, uh, coaching certification program. Mm -hmm. And I've actually looked into the course, you actually mm -hmm. do um, live, um, you know, mock uh, client mm. uh, interaction. 
Um, it's an it, it's an extensive process. Mm-hmm. Um, one that I will probably pursue in, in the next few years. I've got a yeah. uh, master's in psychology that I want to do next. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I want to you know keep people um, informed, uh, you know, informed mm-hmm. as I can. But um, you know, if uh, people want to learn more about that or in, or pursue that, they actually can absolutely bring that to reflection. And uh, can you leave us with one piece of advice for people that want to take a step towards intuitive eating? I know there's not because you're going to be one right step for everyone, but maybe just a mindset kind of. Um... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I think that the most helpful thing that I've gleaned from a client thus far and very recently um, was that they had to identify their personal narratives and challenge them. And their personal narratives were internalized weight stigma. Mm -hmm. So if you have a belief about yourself that you are out of control or that you can't be trusted around food, maybe just examine where that belief came from. Mm -hmm. And if you can remember a time in your life when you did eat an amount of food that tasted good and was satisfying and you stopped when you felt like you'd had enough because that's some evidence that um, maybe those beliefs uh, wouldn't hold up. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. I look forward to following your work. Thank you.